Let me pray, then we're going to jump in. God, thank you for the setup to this study of Psalms uh, with the songs that we've sung. How good it is to be reminded that you love to show mercy, that your desire is to put our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, that, that you, you do not treat us as our sins deserve nor repay us according to our iniquities, but as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is your love toward those who fear you. And now as we open your book, I pray that you would be our teacher. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, how many of you, let's be honest now, how many of you were fans of that TV series Downton Abbey a few years ago? Okay, well, I may forfeit my man card by admitting this, uh, but I watched all six seasons of Downton Abbey with my wife, Sue, and, and then when the movie came out this past spring, we went to the movie together. And if you don't know the story, the backdrop, uh, it's a story about an aristocratic family in the 1920s in England. They live in this uh, mansion, this castle-like mansion. They've got all sorts of servants serving them. There are uh, many ma main characters to the story, but one in particular, Mary. Uh, Mary's the oldest of three grown daughters, and Mary is kind of an ice princess. Uh, she's hard-hearted, she's spiteful, especially toward her sister, Edith. In fact, in one episode, Edith gets engaged, and then Mary tells the fiance that Edith has had a baby out of wedlock, and so he breaks off the engagement. And Mary's mother is incensed with her. How could you do that to your sister? She wants to know. And then she tells her, he says, you need to go make things right with Edith, and then you need to make things right with yourself. Now, I'm watching this, and I'm thinking, wait, wait a minute, with yourself? No, she's got to make things right with God, uh, which is, you know, when my wife reminded me, honey, this is only a drama. This is not real life. Mary's not a real person. You know, usually the only time I yell at the TV set is when the Cubs are playing. And today we're going to take a look at what the Bible has to say about how to make peace with God, how to make things right with God when our sin has damaged that relationship. And this is, this is a really important lesson to learn, friends, because bad behavior is a regular part of our lives. And it cuts us off from genuine fellowship with God. The, the prophet Isaiah warns us in Isaiah 59, verse 2, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. It's not good. And so the Bible teaches us how to daily restore a broken relationship with God. It's a spiritual practice called confession. Confession. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 51, okay? Psalm 51, right about the middle of your Bible. This is a song of confession. There are probably seven or eight songs of confession in the book of Psalms. If your uh, Bible or your electronic device, if it's open to Psalm 51, take a look at the superscription. Okay, those are the, the, the italicized words before verse 1. Uh, superscriptions were not originally part of the Psalms. They were, they were added by a later editor who, who wanted us to know most likely who wrote this Psalm and what were the circumstances behind the writing. So what is the superscription at the beginning of, of Psalm 51? Well, it says that the Psalm was written by David after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and was confronted by the prophet Nathan. See that? So David's adultery with, with, with Bathsheba seriously damaged 
David's relationship with God. And so Psalm 51 is a song of confession. It shows us how David accessed God's forgiveness in order to restore this broken relationship. Just a personal side note here. If you took a look at my Bible, you would see all the, the gold stuff is worn off the edge of the page at Psalm 51. I use this Psalm a lot in my, my prayer life. And so I want to walk you through the five steps of confession today. If you're a note taker, here's number one. Step number one, I'm going to call the review. Okay, the review. Listen as I read Psalm 51, the opening verses. David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Now at my home church, when I'm done reading the scripture, I like to remind people that this is the word of the Lord and then everybody says, thanks be to God. So let's try that. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in verse 3, David says that he was well aware of his sins. I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. David knew what he'd done wrong, and he had his buddy, his buddy Nathan the prophet, to thank for that. Nathan was an in-your-face kind of guy. And God sent him to confront David with his sin, but Nathan was a little concerned. If he was too direct, he might not only lose his job as court counselor, he might lose his head if he gets David angry. So he elects to tell a story, because people love stories. He tells David this story about a rich guy who owns a large flock of sheep, and one day a guest comes for, for dinner, and instead of making mutton stew out of one of his sheep, he goes to the neighbor who's got one little lamb, it's his pet lamb, and he takes the lamb from this guy, and that's what he makes dinner out of. And David was so captivated by the story, he leaps to his feet, and he says, that guy deserves to die. Nathan looked him in the eye, and he said, you are the man. You are the man. David was busted. His sin was out in the open. He could no longer ignore it, which is why he writes in verse 3, I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Now, unfortunately, very few of us have a friend like Nathan, you know, somebody who knows our sins, even the secret ones, somebody who's willing to bring them into light with both courageous honesty and genuine concern. So we're pretty much on our own, humanly speaking, when it comes to detecting our transgressions. And the truth is, we don't do a very good job of it. See, our, our tendency is to ignore our sin. Our, our tendency is to excuse sins, minimize them, rationalize them, blame them on somebody else. Uh, Mark McMinn has written a book called Why Sin Matters. And in this book, McMinn says that the, the popular emphasis on self-esteem in our culture today blinds our ability to recognize personal sin. L listen to what he writes. He says, one of the unexamined assumptions of contemporary society is that we should always strain to see the best in ourselves. We're depressed and anxious and stressed, we're told, because we're not nice enough to ourselves. So we learn to use positive self-talk to affirm ourselves, to see how others have hurt us without considering how we've hurt others. Part of the mess is not knowing we're a mess. That's a great quote. Part of the mess is not knowing we're a mess. 
Well, David expressed that same sentiment in the form of a question. You know, in another one of his Psalms, Psalm 19, verse 12, David asked the question, who can discern their own errors? Forgive my, my, my hidden faults. You know, who can discern their own, their own errors? In other words, we're not very astute at detecting our own sins. We tend to be blind to them. And this creates a huge problem for us, friends, because if we don't detect our sins, there's little chance that we're going to confess our sins. And if we don't confess our sins, then we're, we're going to limp along with this damaged relationship with God because our sins cut us off from a sense of God's presence, from answers to prayer, from God's blessing, His protection. So how do we keep this from happening? Step one, we do a careful review of our lives every day with the help of God's Spirit who will help us identify and then confess our sins. Let me say that again. We do a regular review every day with the help of God's Spirit to identify and confess our sins. I I open my prayer time, my devotional time with the Lord by inviting the Holy Spirit to put his finger on anything in my life that has grieved him in any way that I've held him at arm's length or turned a deaf ear to his voice in the previous 24 hours. And then I, I, I review my life from the past day or two, the meetings I was in, the conversations I engaged in, how I treated other people, what I did with my free time, how I spent my money. And, and then with the, the help of the Holy Spirit, who is my Nathan, I, I look for any signs of anger or lust or selfishness, indifference to God, gossip, materialism, and whatever God's Spirit puts his finger on, I confess it. A couple times a week, and I'm not suggesting you have to do it this way, but a couple times a week it helps me to go deeper by actually writing this out in my journal. Holy Spirit of God, put your finger on anything in my life that I need to come clean about. So step number one, the review. Step number two, the repercussions. The repercussions. Let's go back to Psalm 51. I want to pick it up at verse 4 where we left off. David says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Now, friends, if you know the story of David and Bathsheba, you might be a bit confused by the opening line of this verse. David says to God, against you, you only have I sinned. You say, well, wait, wait just a second, David. Against God only? You know, what about Bathsheba? Okay, you committed adultery with her. You got her pregnant. What about her husband, Uriah? If you know the story, Uriah was a a military man. And in order to cover up his sin, David sent Uriah into the heat of battle where he knew he'd be, be killed. What about the nation of Israel that you've been called upon God to lead and you've dishonored your leadership role? What about your family? David's family was a mess from this point on. His boys imitated their dad's bad behavior. How can David describe his sin, verse 4, as being against God only? Well, what David is telling us here, friends, is, is that when we finally get in touch with our sins, you know, thanks to a Holy Spirit-led review, our tendency is to, is to see how our sins have hurt other people, to see how our sins have hurt ourselves, but to fail to recognize the damage they've done to our relationship with God the offense they've given God, to see God as the the primary offended party. 
Yet every time we sin, friends, whatever the sin, we're dishonoring God. Sin, someone has said, is contempt of God. It's a disregard of God's standards. It's a sullying of God's reputation. It's an ignoring of God's leadership in our lives. It's an ingratitude for all the goodness that he's expressed toward us. Sin is failure to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we know Jesus said that's the first and greatest commandment. So the worst repercussions of our sins are the damage they do to our relationship with God. You get it? Now, in my church, every once in a while, I check in to make sure everybody's still awake. So I say get it, they say got it, I say good, and then we go on. You get it? Good, good. Now, I'm not saying here that our sins don't hurt other people. They do. You know, I've just mentioned David's sin hurt Bathsheba, Uriah, the nation of Israel, his family. And yet, even in the hurting of other people, the primary one offended is God because these people have been made in God's image. These are people whom God desperately loves that we've mistreated. So something to think about when we're confessing our sins to God, the repercussions you know, primarily have to do with our relationship with him. Well, one last thought in, the, in this regard before we move on to the next point. I've found it helpful in my prayer life when I'm confessing sin to apologize to the Holy Spirit of God, third person of the Trinity. Why? Because it's the Holy Spirit's job. You know, when you surrender your life to Jesus, Scripture says the Holy Spirit comes to live on the inside, and his primary purpose in your life is to conform you to the image of Christ. And so, so the, the Spirit of God is trying to paint on the canvas of my life the beautiful picture of the character of Christ, and when I sin, it's like I take a bucket of black paint and I splash it up against the masterpiece, ruining it. And so when I confess my sin, I need to say, oh, Holy Spirit of God, forgive me for ignoring your voice, for grieving you, for undoing the work that you're doing. The repercussions. Number three, the roots. The roots. We're up to verse five. David says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Now, I'm using the NIV translation of the, of the Bible. I just read it to you. The opening line of verse 6 says, you desired faithfulness even in the womb. I'm not crazy about that translation of the Hebrew. For one thing, it just doesn't make sense to me. God desires faithfulness in my mother's womb. What, what are we saying here? The, the ESV, I like the ESV translation a little bit better. It says, you delight in truth in the inward being. So it's, it's not in the inward womb of his mom. It's David's talking about the, you know, the inward being of his heart. David knew that God wants us to be people of integrity at the very core of our being. So our inward being, our heart, has to be cleansed of sin. We have to address the underlying cause of our sinful behavior. We need to get to the roots. We need to get to the roots of our sins, to the sin behind the sin. You following this? Okay, let, let, let me give you a few examples here. I'll start with myself. It's always kind of embarrassing to admit your own sin in front of a large group of people. But we'll just keep this between ourselves, all right? So, one of the sins I find myself confessing frequently is the sin of impatience. 
I'm just an impatient dude. I'm impatient with other drivers. I'm impatient with every electronic device I own. Okay, I get impatient when people interrupt my agenda for the day. I'm impatient in the waiting room of doctors. I'm impatient as I stand in line at the grocery store and the cashier is chatting it up with the person ahead of me. And so I find myself repeatedly having to come before the Lord and say, oh, God, forgive me for my impatience. But one day I was reading a Christian book on impatience, and the writer said, you know, the sin behind impatience is grandiosity. And I said, ah, grandiosity. What's that? So I looked it up in the dictionary, and it's just a fancy word for pride. In other words, behind my impatience is this sense that, you know, the world should revolve around me. I shouldn't have to wait for anybody else. And so now, these days, when I confess my impatience to the Lord, I, I got to go to the sin behind the sin, and God thank me, uh, forgive me rather, for being too big for my britches, for thinking that I'm such hot stuff. Let, let me give you another example of the, the sin behind the sin. I have married guys uh, confess to me from time to time that, that when they struggle with lust, you know, when they dabble in porn, it's often because they're angry at their wife. So there's some contention going on. They've had a heated argument. There's been unresolved bitterness. And so she goes to bed at night and he goes to his laptop and he calls up some porn to uh, medicate himself, so to speak. See what's going on here? So when these guys confess lust, what they need to do is say, God, forgive me for the lust that took me to the porn, but forgive me for the sin behind the sin. The trigger was my anger, my unresolved resentment toward my wife. Forgive me for that. Let, let, let me give you one final example. Any addictive behavior in your life, okay, there is a sin behind that addictive behavior. Whether you're addicted to alcohol or you're addicted to shopping or you're addicted to golf or, you know, anything you do too much of, and you know the Lord's put his finger on that, and so you've confessed to the Lord, I do too much of that, Lord. I, you know, it, it keeps me from paying attention to your word and uh, serving you in ministry. And what, when you're confessing that addictive behavior, look for the trigger behind it, because I guarantee there's a behavior that has driven you to that obsessive behavior. You get it? Oh, that was only okay. You get it? Okay, that was good. That was good. Step four, okay, get to the roots. Number three, step number four, the requests. So after David acknowledged his sin to God, his confession turned the corner, and he moved on to some requests. And boy, there are a number of requests in the next few verses. So follow along as I pick it up at verse 7. What does David ask God to do? Cleanse me with hyssop, and I'll be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then I'll teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Now, David poses a number of requests in these handful of verses. But let me try and sum them up because I think they all revolve around one main theme here. The, the requests all have to do with David's heart. He's asking God to do something with his heart. Three things that I see. One is that he asks God for a clean heart. 
Okay, verse 7, he says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. I love this verse because often when we're done confessing our sins, we know we're forgiven, but we still feel yucky. We still feel sullied. We still, still feel dirty. And it's good to be reminded that God can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He could wash it away. Now, there's a really important word picture here. He says, cleanse me with hyssop. What's hyssop? Well, hyssop is a plant. It's got a tall stalk, and it's got a, a head of a, kind of a leafy head to it. It looks kind of like a paintbrush. And in the very first instance of it described in Scripture, that's exactly what it's used for, a sort of paintbrush. See, in the book of Exodus, God's people have been in bondage in Egypt for over 400 years. God sends them a deliverer by the name of Moses. Pharaoh's not about to let the people go. God has to send 10 plagues to loosen Pharaoh's grip on his people, the last plague being the devastating angel of death who kills every firstborn human and animal except for God's people because they've been instructed to sacrifice an animal and take some hyssop and dip it into the blood of the animal and spread it on their doorpost so that when the angel of death sees the blood, he'll pass over that home. So in Old Testament times, hyssop became associated with sacrifice with being delivered from the wrath, the judgment of God. Okay, fast forward to the New Testament. Another instance of hyssop, John chapter 19, Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he says, I thirst. And so some dude goes and he grabs a sponge filled with, uh, with vinegar water, and he holds it up to Jesus on the end of a stalk of hyssop. It's as if John in John chapter 19 is reminding us that there's a sacrifice being offered here, that the wrath of God is being averted. There's deliverance from the judgment of God against our sin. The judgment is death. See, sin is going our way instead of God's way, and friends, when we do that, we, we disconnect from God, and because God is the giver of life, the consequence is death. So that's what we deserve, the wages of sin is death, Paul writes in Romans 6.23. So Jesus comes to planet Earth, the eternal Son of God, and he lays down his life on the cross in payment for our sins, a life of infinite worth as the eternal Son of God. Jesus doesn't stay dead. He takes the death we deserve to die, but he doesn't stay dead. He's raised from the dead, and he lives today, and he offers forgiveness to anyone who will surrender to him as Savior and King. So have you ever done that? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus as Savior and King? Because when you do, okay, when you confess sin, you can know it's not only forgiven, but it's washed away. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, not just to forgive us our sins, but to cleanse us cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when David's done confessing his sin, he asks God for a change of heart. He asks for a clean heart. And second, he asks God for a new heart, 
a new heart. Look again at the opening line of verse 10 where he says, create in me, create in me a clean heart, O God. Now, the verb create in this verse is a verb that's only used to God in the Bible because it means to make something out of nothing, and that's something only God can do. In Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before that, there was nothing, and then God makes something new. And friends, this is exactly what we wish God would do, isn't it? When we've confessed our sins, I mean, we're grateful that we're forgiven. We're grateful that we, we've got a clean heart. But don't you wish you wouldn't go back to that same pattern of sin again and again and again? There, there is a, a part of us that is discouraged because we, we, we sense we're doomed to repeat this. Have to be uh, confessing the same sin tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And, you know, God's promise is that he could give us a new heart, a heart that chooses to obey him. So we not only confess our gossip and our lust and our, our materialism, but we say, now God, give me a heart that doesn't gossip and doesn't lust and doesn't spend all my money on myself. The, the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 36, 26, and 27 said, I will give you a new heart. This is God, hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus. God says, I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I will put my spirit in you and move you, listen, move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So God's spirit can give us both, both the desire and the ability to obey God, to break the patterns of sin in our lives. So we ask God not only for a clean heart, but oh, now give me a new heart that longs to obey you third kind of heart David asks for that I see in this handful of requests. He asks for a missional heart, a missional heart. Look again at verse 13. David expresses his hope in this verse that after God has given him a clean heart, a new heart, God will, will be able to use him in the lives of other people. You see that verse 13? He says he wants to teach fellow transgressors God's way. He wants to help fellow sinners turn to God. But guess what? David can't do that while he's still stuck in his own sins. D David can't be used of God while he's still mired in his own transgressions. You know, this is a realization, friends, that, that deeply disturbs me when I'm confessing my sins. I often wonder, how many opportunities have I forfeited to be used by God in other people's lives while I was preoccupied with my sinful behaviors? You ever wonder that? You know, God's given us a mission. And, and we can either fulfill that mission daily or we could dink around in sin, but you, you can't do both. So, so while we are wrapped up in some particular sin, while some sin has us in its grasp, while we're nursing a grudge, or we're looking at porn, or we're venting our anger, or we're filling our closets with new clothes, all that time we are ill-prepared to be used by God. Sin gets us off mission. You know, sin undermines our readiness to be a loving spouse, a parent, a, a listening friend, a savvy boss, a helpful neighbor, an ambassador for Christ. And, and so after we confess our sins, we, we need to ask God to give us a missional heart. Put me back in the game, Jesus, is what we say. I've been sidelined by my sin, and now I want to be used by you again. These are the requests that accompany our confession of sin. A different kind of heart. 
that's clean, that's new, loves to obey God, that's missional, purposeful. Fifth and finally, the responsiveness. We only have time to look at uh, one or two final verses in Psalm 51. So drop down to verse 16. David says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. How do you feel about this word broken in verse 17? Pops up two times. If you you like to mark up your Bible, circle that word. You know, does it strike you as odd that all God wants from us? You know, just give me a broken spirit. Give me a broken heart to work with. Because we we don't usually think a broken is a good thing, right? If you you break your arm, your arm is now useless, and a doctor's got to wrap it up in a cast, and you're probably going to have to go through PT when the cast comes off. Okay, if you break dishes, you can no longer use those dishes. And when the company comes over, if you break your word to a friend, that relationship is going to be damaged for some time till you re-earn trust. So broke, it's not a good thing, right? Well, in some ways it is. There are occasions when being broken is a good thing. I'll give you a for instance. When I was a boy, I played Little League Baseball. And I'll never forget going periodically to get a new baseball mitt at the hardware store. Not sure why they sold them at the hardware store, but that's where I got my new mitts. And they were always really, really stiff. You couldn't use it when you first got it. I mean, it wouldn't close around a a hot hit grounder or a pop fly. And so I would get oil. I think it was linseed oil. Some of you have lived long enough to remember those days, and you rub oil into, your, into the leather of your mitt, and you put a baseball in it and close it and wrap twine or wrap some rubber bands around it and stick it under your bed, and you do it several times until the mitt was broken in. Broken in, and now it's useful. And now it's useful. If we live in a perpetual state of brokenness, in the best sense of that word. Our character is continually being conformed to the image of Christ. And so our spirit is pliable. Where We're responsive to God's leadings. God can use us. On the contrary, when we go days, friend, when we go days without confessing our sins to God, our lack of brokenness makes it very unlikely that God is going to lead us that God's going to be able to use us, that God is going to speak through us. It takes this daily discipline of confessing our sins to maintain a responsiveness to God. You get it? Good. I had to do that one last time. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. We would be remiss if we didn't close in a prayer of confession. So let's do that right now. It's a good way to review the five steps of confession that we learned from Psalm 51. The first is the review. So I invite you, Holy Spirit of God, as your people are bowed in your presence, would you help us review the last 24 hours of our lives? God, the conversations we we, we had, the way we spent our money, what we did with our free time, whether we spent time with you or neglected that, God, just by your spirit, put your finger on anything that needs to be confessed. Anything we did that grieved you, Holy Spirit of God, or that turned a deaf ear to your voice, 
in the quietness of our hearts right now as we do this review, bring these things to the forefront of our thinking. Step two was the repercussions. You may have called to mind something you did that hurt somebody else or that damaged your own character or reputation. But the biggest repercussion is the damage it did to your relationship with God. So would you say right now, Holy Spirit of God, forgive me for turning a deaf ear to you. Forgive me for undoing the work that you're about in my life of conforming me to Christ's image. Forgive me, holy God, for the way in which I've offended you. Step three had to do with the roots. You can't do this with everything God's Spirit brought to mind. We'd be here the rest of the day, but just take one of those things, one of those sins that God's Spirit brought to the forefront of your thinking and ask yourself the question, so what was behind that? What motivated that? Was there a sin behind the sin? And confess that right now. And then finally, the request is, God, I want a different kind of heart. You can cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean because Jesus took my sin in his body on the cross. So give me a clean heart. Give me a new heart. Give me a desire to obey you, to not repeat this same transgression again and again, but to grow in maturity in Christ. Give me a missional heart. I've been out of the game. I've not been able to be used by you in the lives of others because I've been nursing this this sin when I should be listening to the voice of your spirit. So put me back in the game, coach. And then finally, Lord God, we ask for the brokenness that's not a bad thing, the good kind of brokenness that leaves us pliable, responsive to your leadings able to be used by you in the lives of others. Help us to walk in intimacy with you. Help us to take what we learned today and put it into practice Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the rest of this week, God, and make a habit out of coming clean before you each day, being filled anew with your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen.